Well, first, it's very kind of you to come. It's especially kind of those of you who in the past have had to sit through endless tutorials with me and who on occasions even endured a few of my lectures. To submit voluntarily to another dose of it and actually to pay for it um, <laughs> is something that I don't think any of us could ever anticipate. <laughs> so you're all very welcome. First, in most European countries, giving a talk on coalition government would scarcely be worthwhile. Most European governments are coalitions, have been for years, and almost certainly will continue to be. In Britain, there has been no formal coalition since the end of Churchill's government in 1945. For many years, this was for two principal reasons. First, the heavy dominance of the two main parties. Dominance buttressed, secondly, by the electoral system. And this has helped to produce party stability in government. There have been only three changes of government in the last 30 years or so. 1979, 1997, and last year. And yet within that stability, there has been great turbulence in the party system. The rise and fall of the Liberal SDP alliance in the 1980s, the crash of the Labour Party in the early 1980s, the emergence of new Labour and the crash of the Conservatives, in 1997, and the crash of Labour, at least in terms of its vote, in 2010. Nevertheless, the electoral system dictates that the two main parties must demonstrate at an election, at least in public, that they are united and that they will win an overall majority. Nothing else will do. Therefore, the language associated with no overall majority and hung parliaments is lurid. I give you one quotation from the last general election. Hung parliament. Quote, Behind closed-door politics, indecision, weak government, a paralysed economy, and yet another election within the calendar year. That was David Cameron. <laughs> now, the results of the election, <clears throat> you all know. The Conservatives were roughly 20 seats short of an overall majority. The Liberal Democrat vote went up 1%, and they came out with five seats fewer than in 2005. Labour got its second lowest vote since 1922, but they had at least denied the Conservatives a majority. In its old-fashioned form, the electoral system had not worked. It had not delivered a majority. But the result was a delicate equipoise. Had the Conservatives got ten seats more, the pressure would have been intense on Cameron 
to form a minority administration and simply challenge the other parties to do their worst. Had the Conservatives got 10 seats fewer, it is quite likely there would have ended up some arrangement between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. As it was, the parliamentary arithmetic was clear. If there was to be a majority, it was going to be some sort of arrangement between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. Anything else became even more unlikely when significant Labour politicians, such as David Blunkett, appeared on the television saying that they would not countenance a deal with the Liberal Democrats. So the deal was struck. First note that it took only five days. The Constitution, insofar as it had precedence, worked. Two parties agreed on a joint manifesto. The incumbent Prime Minister waited until there was a new government, and he then resigned, just as it should be. The new government was accompanied by the Coalition Manifesto, mainly a hybrid document drawn directly from the manifestos of the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, assisted by some tweaking from senior civil servants. But it was the programme for government, and it was accompanied by Cameron's announcement that he would give up the Prime Minister's right to call elections and that the current Parliament would last for five years. And the bill enabling that to happen is currently being drawn up and will be presented to the House of Commons. Now, the new government caused immediate Conservative difficulties. 25 places in total had to be found for Liberal Democrats in the government. By definition, 25 Conservatives who would have hoped to gain office under a Conservative government did not get it. Right from the outset, this caused grievances. Moreover, in the way in which the coalition was put together, the Conservative Parliamentary Party was consulted only intermittently and then only slightly. For the Liberal Democrats, of course, it was considerably easier. There were only 57 of them. They could be kept in contact with what was going on hour by hour. But many Conservative MPs did not know what their negotiating team was committing them to. They were, of course, in no position to object when Cameron came out of the steps, onto the steps of 10 Downing Street with his wife, said he was the Prime Minister and went off to Buckingham Palace. There was nothing that the Conservative MPs could do except grumble, and some of them did very loudly. In fact, the Conservative Whip's office spent a great deal of time over the vital 48 hours keeping various Conservative backbenchers off the television. They largely succeeded in this, um, except in the case of the indefatigable Bill Cash, who managed to <laughs> pop up on three television channels in two hours, pursued by his own whips who were trying to get him to shut up. So the coalition was formed. Nick Robinson, BBC's 
principal political um, commentator said, and I quote, not so much of a political marriage as a political civil partnership. And so it was. It was left to a conservative backbencher in a very foul temper, merely to say to television cameras, I quote, a pride of lion, a gaggle of geese, a coalition of cheaters. <laughs> Seldom have there been so little enthusiasm from the component parts of a government when it was actually launched. Nevertheless, at least mechanically, the coalition government is working. This is in spite of the fact that it is the least disciplined of any government since 1945. There have been continual backbench revolts against government legislation. These include the most dramatic, of course, over student fees and funding, in which 22 Liberal Democrats and eight Conservatives voted against the government, and the Liberal Democrats managed to split three ways. That was the most dramatic, but it was, in a sense, not the most important. Less dramatic, but probably more important for the medium term, was the vote on the European Communities Bill on the 19th of January, when 27 Conservatives voted against the government, eight abstained, and five were absent. This is well over 10% of the whole of the Conservative Party, which would not support the government, on negotiations which Cameron had himself recommended to the House of Commons. The crucial point is this. There are most unlikely to be big issues on which conservative dissidents <coughs> will agree with liberal democrat dissidents. As long as those two groups are kept separate, the government has a healthy working majority, even if at any one time a significant minority is dissatisfied. What I've just said is aided by the fact that the chief whip, a conservative, and the deputy chief whip, a liberal democrat, work very closely together and apparently in harmony. Now let's turn to some of the policies. The last general election should have been held in an atmosphere of crisis. The financial situation was by any standards disastrous. In fact, the coalition came out of that election able to do more or less what it wanted because so little concrete had been promised by any of the three parties. This included, of course, the rise in VAT. The election was not held in an atmosphere of crisis. If anything, the coalition has induced the atmosphere of crisis since it took office. Starting with George Osborne's financial review, the effects of the cuts became only gradually apparent, and of course most of them will not actually take effect until the 1st of April, or thereabouts. The effects of the cuts came as a shock to middle-class Britain, especially coming from a conservative-dominated government. 
The Daily Telegraph has had a front page headline which has said middle classes to suffer or something very similar to that 42 times since the general election. It is, I think, ready to be printed in the first editions of the Telegraph every day. <laughs> if there's a bigger story that comes along, well, they put it aside for one day and bring it back the next day. The confusion has arisen partly, of course, from historical development. In 1945, households either paid tax or they received benefits. Today, most households receive both, because after 1945, state benefits became universal. Therefore, they benefited the well-to-do as well as the poor. They did not distinguish between those who were state-dependent and those who merely benefited from state handouts. Equally, alongside this, after 1945 and right the way through the 1960s and early 70s, there were enhanced expectations of what governments could do and what governments should do. And it is this mindset which, of course, has dominated most of the welfare state during our lifetimes. And I think that political culture remains. I am part of its second generation. Most of you are part of its third generation. And I think that the strength of that view of what governments should do and what governments should deliver will cause great difficulties to the new conservative notion of the big society, whose consequences are already causing dissatisfaction and revolt amongst both conservative and liberal Democrat local government leaders. I suspect that the big society will become the sort of political tool which the third way became for Labour, well-meaning but largely indefinable. Now I want to talk briefly about the referendum on the alternative vote. Now I want to do this because, to give you an illustration of what I take to be the typical mess that governments get into whenever governments attempt constitutional change in Britain. The last Labour government left unfinished business. It cut the number of hereditary peers you remember, to the inexplicable figure of 92, a figure which never has been explained, but which still stands. Labour had another go in 2003 at reforming the House of Lords and offered the House of Commons six alternatives. They ranged from 100% elected to 100% appointed and various categories of election and appointment in between. The House of Commons voted on all six one evening and it defeated all six. <laughs> that was the end, so far, of reform of the House of Lords, which the current government also promises to enact, but without any very clear idea of what it is that it's going to enact. As far as the referendum is concerned, this is a mess caused partly by the government. 
which has tied the referendum to its plan to set up the Boundary Commission with the intention of reducing the size of the House of Commons by 50, from 650 to 600. This is a hybrid bill. If you vote for the referendum, you get the cutting of the House of Commons as well. The circumstances of the referendum are themselves extraordinary. At the last general election, the Labour Party promised in its manifesto to hold a referendum on the alternative vote. It lost the election. The Conservatives, most of whom, as you know, do not want to change the system at all, made no mention of anything in their manifesto. The Liberal Democrats wanted a system of the single transferable vote because it is very largely proportional. So we're going to have a referendum on the policy of the party which lost the election, proposed by two parties, neither of whom actually want the alternative vote. <laughs> For good measure, the Labour Party is now divided over its own proposals of last year. Its new leader, Ed Miliband, has said that he will speak and campaign for a change in the voting system. More than half his cabinet, shadow cabinet have said they will speak and campaign against it. A nice mess. Compounded by the even more extraordinary behaviour of the House of Lords. First, Labour peers kept the House of Lords sitting for three whole nights, attempting to talk out the reduction of the size of the House of Commons. Note the irony of the Labour Party trying to use the House of Lords to thwart the House of Commons. Note also that the unelected House of Lords has 800 members, by far the largest second chamber in the world and substantially larger than the House of Commons, which it was trying to reduce. Never before has the House of Lords attempted to dictate the number of MPs there shall be. After that failed, Conservative peers, led by Lord Lamont, former Chancellor, and Lord Forsyth, former Secretary of State for Scotland, introduced an amendment on the referendum to say that for the result to have any um, legal weight, at least 40% of people must vote. This was carried against the government by a majority of 70, i.e. Lamont and Forsyth got their way. After a day of arm-twisting and machination amongst the government whips, the vote was taken again at midnight, allegedly because all of the crossbench peers had now gone home. On this second vote, the government secured a majority of 70, <laughs> i.e. a massive change in the vote in the House of Lords in a matter of 12 hours on a bill which the Conservative led government had promised to introduce. A mess. It was indeed a 19th century political theorist who wrote, the British Constitution, like the copulation of eels, is a slippery and mysterious business. <laughs> now I give you the example of this tussle because it seems to me to be a very clear example of something which would not have occurred 
under single-party government. Which leads me to some other remarks in which I think we can make a comparison. First, are we being taken in a different direction than under a purely conservative government? I think the answer is yes. Such things as taking the lowest paid out of the tax system, um, pupil premiums, were not in the Conservative manifesto, but were easily absorbed into a Conservative and then a joint programme. Yes, in another sense, that when the, round of, the first round of public expenditure cuts was being discussed, some extraordinary alliances emerged. The department that came under greatest pressure and over which there was greatest argument within the Conservatives was over the Ministry of Defence, and Liam Fox broadly had his back to the wall, only to discover to his astonishment that the Liberal Democrats actually supported the building of more aircraft carriers. This was so astounding to him that he literally said, could say nothing in the House of Commons when the Liberal Democrats announced it. It also, I may say, greatly irritated some Conservative backbenchers who wanted themselves to claim the credit for building more aircraft carriers. <laughs> then are we witnessing a different form of leadership? I think here the answer is obviously yes. It is not only that Cameron and Clegg plainly have a very good working relationship, but that within particular departments, ministers are working very well with juniors of another party. This is rather to my surprise, particularly so, for example, with Michael Gove and the Education Department. I think, therefore, that what we are seeing and what we're going to continue to see is intra-party conflict rather than inter-party conflict. And I give you one more example of this, which would not happen under single-party government. The House of Commons Select Committees, now quite powerful committees, are the areas which have been most critical of government policy in the last nine months, rather than the Labour opposition. This has been so, for example, of the Health Committee, chaired by Stephen Dorrell, former Minister of Health in the 1990s, attacking very vigorously much of what Andrew Lansley is proposing for the Health Service. The Accounts Committee, chaired by Andrew Tyree, another Conservative MP, has been busy attacking the Treasury over a number of matters and only yesterday passed a resolution calling on the Treasury to drop its proposals over cutting um, the BBC World Service, for example. Bernard Jenkin, former Chief Whip, now chairman of another parliamentary committee, launched a pretty scabrous attack on the government two weeks ago on the abolition of the numbers of quangos, which the government proposes, saying, probably rightly, that many of these quangos would be abolished, but actually the people working in them would simply be transferred directly into a government department. And this was not conservative policy. Three examples of committees attacking the government and to my mind, the important thing is they are all chaired by Conservatives. So Conservatives and Liberal Democrats were in some ways unlikely allies, certainly in financial terms, but in other ways natural allies 
in attitudes to the state and anti-statism, particularly because the Liberal Democrats have become so critical of the last Labour government and allegedly what they saw as overstatism, particularly in the education department led by Ed Balls. Where is the coalition weakest? It seems to me not necessarily in ordinary policy that we um, would consider day by day. I think two areas. One is um, towards local government. Um, the cuts that are going to be introduced in local government budgets are going to bite deep. And, of course, the government has simply told local government to cut expenditure on a very complicated formula, the consequence of which is that the cuts are being applied very differently, local authority by local authority by local authority, i.e. no uniformity. <clears throat> we are in Oxford going to be put in the rather extraordinary position whereby concessionary bus fares are being retained in Oxfordshire, but not in Buckinghamshire. So if you catch a bus from Oxford to somewhere in Buckingham, you get a concessionary fare. If your friend does it the other way round, you don't get a concessionary fare, even though the buses are exactly the same buses with the same drivers. And allied to this, I would say, is ignoring the politics of ageing, something which the last Labour government recognised as being a bigger and bigger problem for any government. Not only are the elderly disproportionately affected by local government cuts, but of course at the same time the government is gradually going to raise the pension age and privatise um, pension schemes. I think this will lead to a situation in which some government, not necessarily this one, but a future government, will be forced to resume some of the responsibilities from which the coalition is trying to escape. Going back to the point I made earlier about what people perceive governments should be doing and what they actually can do. And two final points. One is, as you know, Britain has a highly partisan press. Apart from probably the Financial Times, nearly all of our significant newspapers have very strong and clear views on matters. The existence of the coalition has thrown the press into confusion, particularly the Conservative press, which half wishes to support a Conservative-led government and half hates much of what the government is doing. If you read the press more carefully, it is a very interesting time to see the editors and the journalists in a state of confusion. Their partisanship is still there, but it's flailing wildly around all over the place. And finally, I would say that I think that the status quo has been substantially affected by the coalition, even so far, that we would not go back to the status quo ante. The party system is itself still in flux, and I think we can tell that from the pattern of the last election results. The Conservatives got 306 seats, but it was a very partial victory. It was a very English victory, only one seat in Scotland, and the Conservatives still not having any seats at all in Birmingham, Britain's biggest, the second biggest city, in Nottingham, in Leicester, Liverpool, Leeds, Sheffield, Bradford, Hull, Newcastle, no Conservatives at all. The country is divided in this way much more sharply 
than during Thatcher's governments of the 1980s. So I would argue that the party system is still in flux, and we will only see what the developments are in the next two or three years. But I would predict we will not go back to the status quo ante. If any of you think I am making a rather outlandish remark by saying that, I simply ask you to think of this. Had I been talking to you this time last year, and I were to say, by the end of this year, Nick Clegg will be the Deputy Prime Minister, you would have thought that I had one more screw loose than most of you have anyway thought anyway for many years. <laughs> Thank you very much.